one of these evenings we're going to take a full, a full 15 minutes just to do fellowship because you guys enjoy it so much and gives you an opportunity to catch up and so we're excited that you're able to do that and want to do that. So, uh, but I have about a two-hour sermon. So, no, I won't beat that one. <laughs> but but uh, I do want to, uh, yeah, get started with some things from God's Word. So, as we've been making this journey through the book of Acts, uh, we've just uh, seen uh, Stephen's ministry and his martyrdom. We've seen Philip's ministry, and we saw Saul's conversion last week. And uh, just interesting to see how the book of Acts moves along. Uh, we're now moving into Peter's ministry. He was uh, in Samaria. He and John went back, as best we know, to Jerusalem, and then he set out kind of on a traveling ministry through Judea. And so that's the text we're going to embrace tonight. It's in Acts 9, 32 through 43. So uh, uh, it is a passage in which we see two miracles. And so that begs the question of biblical miracles. And, and I want to use that phrase with, with extreme uh, uh, encouragement to think in terms of biblical miracles. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible have to say about these things called miracles? Because I think uh, throughout its, its uh, entirety in various places, especially in some very particularly, it talks about signs, wonders, and miracles. But I find in our modern culture the word miracle is used a lot that may not very well describe a biblical miracle in the way in which we're going to be talking about it tonight. So encourage you to bear with me. I'll try to be gracious and move along kind of slowly, but, but uh, our culture, I think, sometimes uses that word miracle as another superlative. It's like awesome and stupendous and over, overwhelming, just, just as another word that uh, describes something that's really good. And my fear with that is to overuse the word miracle is to make miracles not meaningful at all. The Bible holds them in a, in a very high place, and, and I want to show that to you tonight. And I think it's important to think about this cautiously and carefully and uh, let the Word speak to us. I hope I'm going to present that well to you and with clarity. And uh, so with that, let's uh, dive into a couple of things before we actually look at the two miracles that are on uh, the text before us. First, uh, I want to define what a biblical miracle is. On the screen behind me, you should see the best that I could come up with in defining a biblical miracle. It is an event in the natural world, that's the world we see, brought about by the immediate will and action of God intended to confirm His messenger and His message that they came from Him. And I think we will see that repeated in the Scriptures. So in order to understand that definition, we, we need to understand uh, that the Scriptures support that very profoundly, and, and it certainly does in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. It says there, the sign of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and miracles or mighty works. 
So to understand a miracle, we need to understand first the context of this uh, idea of what is being violated by God in terms of the laws of nature. nature. Now, I, I have to tell you, I was educated in the secular world, went to a secular university, studied science, and so uh, I was led to believe that there's this world out there that was set in motion by some first cause and that's just been going along uh, in its own merry way, doing the thing that it's supposed to be doing. And I never, until I became a believer, considered that God was involved in all of that. And so before we get too, too much further down this road, understand that that isn't how it really is. This world is God's world. This world is controlled by God. And when God does miracles, he does them in the context of his power and authority in this world. Here's a couple of verses to just help you understand this. After the fall, uh, excuse me, after the flood, when, when God was thinking over what had transpired, he wrote these words in Genesis 8:22. He says there, while the earth remains, and that it's remaining today, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I take that to mean that the seasons and even our light and darkness in our lives is a result of the good hand of our great God who we're worshiping tonight. That he has set all that in motion and he superintends it all. Another verse that kind of shows us out of the wonder of, of this natural world God has created that he blesses us through that. Acts 14, 17 says this, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that's the God we're here to worship, that he pours out of this amazing world that he's created blessings for us. And I want us to understand as well that all this God created and God sustains it and holds it together. We read about that in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says there, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And now I really want you to listen to this. For he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. <laughs> I want you to remember tonight that Jesus Christ is holding you together. He's holding me together. He's holding this building together, the chair you're sitting on. He is sustaining everything. That is one of the things we're taught in the scriptures. He holds it all together. And we know that he has power and authority over because we remember the occasion in the boat when the storm came up and Jesus spoke. He said to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Then he, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. Our God created, sustains, and controls the world in which we live. And we need that background to understand what it has to say about biblical miracles. So let's dive into the text. We're going to look at two of them. Peter went kind of out of Jerusalem and did an itinerant or a traveling ministry. 
and he came to a couple of places where miracles happened. We read first in 9, 32 through 35 these words. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So let's talk about what transpired in this place where Jesus traveled. He was doing this traveling ministry. He went to this place, and I think there's a map, uh, if you could put it up on the screen behind me. I hope you can see that. There's Jerusalem, there's Lydda, and there's, there's Joppa, which we're going to go to and see the uh, healing, or excuse me, the, the raising of Dorcas from death. So anyway, with that background, we know that he was traveling around. We know that he went to this place. These believers probably were dispersed because of the persecution and or came to faith because of Philip's ministry. So, but we know there were believers in Lydda at this time in the surrounding area. As we said, either persecution or Philip himself. Notice that this is stated also for the second time in the books of Acts. It calls these people saints. They were set apart for God. That's what the word saint means. It means to be set apart for the express purpose and, and ministry to God, committed to God, who, uh, those who've come to know Jesus. So we get to the real uh, events that surround this healing in verse 33. It tells us about the ministry Peter encountered. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So what we see here is a description of the first person that we're going to see impacted by Peter. He was in bed, bedridden, because he was paralyzed for eight years. Eight years he was paralyzed. We don't know a lot about that. We don't know what caused his paralysis. We don't know how extensive it was. We don't know if he was a total paraplegic or just was paralyzed in his legs. But we do know this about paralyzed people. They have to be waited on. They can't move around. They don't do the things you and I do. They probably can't cook their food. They probably can't even make themselves uh, go out, and out, or they can't go outside. They have to be carried. All of those kinds of things. Think of that. This is what this man lived with for eight years. He was a paralytic. Somebody had to care for him. Somebody probably had to help him with hygiene. You, know, you could only imagine what went on in his life. But what I want you to see especially is what's said. There he, Peter, found a man named Aeneas. Now, why do I point that out to you? Well, for starters, number one, uh, Aeneas didn't go to a healing service. He didn't appear on television and his, his miraculous healing was broadcast to millions. What had Aeneas done? He had laid on his mat for eight years. And Jesus came, or excuse me, and Peter came and saw him. So that's kind of where we're at. So let's take a look at the healing. There were two results from it. The first was what happened to him physically. The text says, Jesus said to him, Jesus, excuse me, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And what happened? 
instantly, perfectly, this paralytic was no longer a paralytic. He stood up. He made his bed. He, he didn't make a bed like we make them today. We pull up the sheets and the covers and the bedspread. We do that today. No, back then they slept on mats, so literally the command here is to roll up your bed. They would roll them up and put them away because they didn't have large homes. So that's what we see Peter command him to, to do. And, and he didn't say, I heal you. Notice he said what? Jesus Christ heals you. It's very, very important. Earlier, when Peter had healed the lame man at the temple in Jerusalem, he said something very similar. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So what we see here is the power of miracles was a direct empowerment of Jesus or God the Father through his agent or through the individual who was serving him, in this case, Peter. Jesus had promised Peter and and the other apostles, they would have great power. And he even told them in one place that they would do greater things than he had done. So, uh, but understand, Peter wasn't soliciting notoriety or fame for himself. Jesus Christ heals you. And so the focus of this healing was given to Jesus. Notice the, the, uh, the healing itself. It was immediate. There wasn't a delay. There wasn't uh, any failure in it. It wasn't partial. He didn't have to go get therapy. It was complete. He got up, he rolled up his mat, and that was the end of the healing. And what happened is that he began to walk around. And that brings us to the second thing that happened in this particular account. It says in verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This is the second big thing that happens in these miraculous events that God unfolds and and, and brings into our world. There was a belief in the gospel. Many, it says here all, and, and I don't quite know what to do with that. All who saw him, maybe, maybe some didn't see him and didn't come to faith. I, I don't know, but many, many, many people came to faith because of this miracle. So uh, the evidence of the miracle was seen and believed. And uh, in, as I was thinking about that in our study of the Holy Spirit, we know nobody comes except the Spirit draws them. It's pretty obvious that the Spirit, even though he's not mentioned in the text, was operative as a result of this miracle and leading and guiding people to open their hearts to the truth of the gospel. So anyway, that's, that's all that is unfolded before us. And the local people, they didn't praise Peter. They didn't start following him around as, as some great pastor. What they did was believed the gospel message and put their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus got the glory. We must not overlook as well in this, this account that God is continuing to fill his work, fulfill his work through the book of Acts. We're now where? Not in Jerusalem anymore. We're carrying the gospel out into to Judea and all of Judea. And so many more people believe. So the gospel was spreading as was uh, told to us especially in Acts 1-8 where the scripture says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, all Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So understand those things. This man was healed and many came to faith and the miracle pointed people to Jesus. The miracle was glorious in that it brought many to faith and it was a miracle that was perfect in every way. Let's move on to the account of Dorcas or Tabitha. Join me in verse 36. 
Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when, she had washed, uh, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, that's the people, and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, notice the body, has no name at this point, to the body, and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a tanner. The miracle is different in the fact that this woman was dead. But Peter went there. He was... Uh, summoned by people who were believers. And again, as far as we know, the gospel has, has spread now as far as Joppa. And so they came, they sought him out, they brought him to Joppa. And then he went up to this room where he saw uh, this dead body of Tabitha Dorcas and these wailing, mourning people, these women, these widows around her. She was a compassionate, merciful woman. She ministered to people who had needs and, and she cared for them. And she provided garments for them. And we don't know what all else she did, but we do know that she became ill and she died. We don't know why she became ill. We don't know what she became ill with. All we know is she became ill, the text says, and she died. Maybe she wore out from her work and became exhausted and just died. Maybe she was out ministering to some sick person and contracted whatever that person was. And uh, as a result of that, uh, perhaps died. But what we see here is, is this totally normal uh, unfolding of what happened in the ancient Jewish culture when a person died. They would take the body, they would wash the body, they would put the body in an upper room, and there would be weeping and mourning for a number of days. We see this in multiple places, especially the death of Lazarus. And there would be that kind of mourning, and then eventually they would bury the body. Well, Peter got there before they actually buried the body, and that's where this account uh, becomes incredibly interesting. We see everything unfold, just as we would expect in a Jewish world. And then Peter shows up, and he sees the situation, he sees the dead woman, and he ministers in a way that's very, very much like he saw Jesus minister when Jairus' daughter came and sought him at the death of his daughter. He goes in, and he asks all the people to leave, so he is alone in this room, and what do we see him do? He's on his knees in prayer, praying for her, praying to God the Father that he would restore her to life. And then he said simply, Tabitha, arise. And guess what? She woke up. She was risen, uh, at least restored to 
complete health, best we know. We don't know all the details, but she came alive again right before Peter. That's a miracle. I mean, I want you to think about what's happened in these things. Uh, when we talked about uh, uh, the previous one, he was a cripple, Ananias, and, and he'd, been, he'd been crippled or paralyzed for eight years. His muscles would have atrophied. His musculoskeletal system would be in disarray. His nervous system wouldn't be functioning very well. But all of that was instantly restored. Think about this woman, Dorcas. Every physiological activity in her body was brought from death to life. It was restored. Her respiratory system began to function. Her circulatory system began to pump blood and oxygenate her cells. And every one of the trillion cells in her body, the little biochemical reactions that occur in those cells came alive. And she was alive again at the prayer of Peter to God the Father. This is a genuine miracle, uncontestable. She was fully restored to health. And so when we think about that, when we see this uh, in this event, the, the rising of this woman was perfect, it was complete, it was instantaneous. He prayed in private. There was no one else around to see what happened. He, he didn't do it on television to millions of people. He didn't do it out in a crowd. He did it by himself as Jesus did in a room away from the crowds. He wanted God to get the glory, and God did get the glory. So we see that in this and, and the amazing healing that occurred. And he was simply the instrument that God used in this, in all of this. So the raising was perfect. It was amazing. She came back to life. She, it says in the text, he helped her stand up after she sat up and he took her and presented her to the uh, disciples and to the widows. And can you imagine this woman coming out of this closed room alive? They had seen her dead. They had washed her body. They probably knew where they were going to bury her and she walks out alive. That's a biblical miracle. There you go. God got the power, or God, through prayer in his power, raised this woman to life. There we go. Amazing thing. All of this transpired. And it became, as we saw in the previous example with uh, the previous man, the gospel was proclaimed, many came to faith. It says in verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. They saw this woman. They heard the, the account of her coming back to life, and many, many believed. So there we see the, the reality of a couple of biblical miracles. We don't often see uh, all the miracles that occur in Stephen's life and Philip's life. It says they did signs and wonders and miracles, but it doesn't ever give us any examples of it. We see that in other occasions as well. So we get to see it here in this passage. So I think it's important for us to cautiously think through this subject of miracles. And how do we think about them? How do we talk about them as followers of Jesus? And I'm talking now explicitly of biblical miracles. We've seen uh, Dorcas rise from the dead. We've seen Ananias be healed from being a paralytic. The, the other last thing before I jump into some conclusions here that I want to share with you is that 
just to see the gospel begin, begin to work its way through and bring transformation to the world. It says Peter spent some time with what? Simon a tanner. If you know Jewish law, you'd understand this. Jews don't associate with people that handle dead things. They don't. Dead animals are forbidden. If you contact a dead animal, you have to live outside the camp for a while. That was the strict ceremonial law of the Jews. And here we find no self-respecting Jew would ever live with this guy. And we find Peter, what? Staying with him for a period of time so he could proclaim the gospel and continue to do ministry there because God opened doors. So the gospel is tearing down walls as well as reaching people. So all of that is just amazing to think through and to, uh, to ponder. So let me try to bring three kind of conclusions or applications to this, if you will. One of the great lessons, I think, in this study is that miracles, true biblical miracles, point always to God or Jesus. His power is being demonstrated or revealed through them. <clears throat> When Peter performed the miracle, God got the glory. That's just how it happened. He pointed men to God. It wasn't the showmanship or the ministry building things we've seen. I, I saw it in my early years of ministry. There's some of it still going on today where miracles are used to build up men and preachers and ministries so that they gain power and influence over people. But understand, a true biblical miracle always points to God. And I'm not going to judge or, or, or say anything about those ministries. I don't know a lot about them. I, I just know, is God getting the glory? That's the question. Are, are these miracles pointing people to Jesus? So I think that's first and foremost very, very important. Does God get the glory? This brings us to the question I raised initially. To say a whole lot of things are miraculous is just another way of saying, is anything miraculous? Nothing in itself is really miraculous if there are so many of those around. I, <laughs> over the Christmas break, I heard two different news people say that they just uh, had a newborn child and it was a miracle. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, there's 385,000 children born every day in this world. Were there 385,000 miracles? I'm not sure of that. I think natural. I, I mean, as wonderful as children are, as a blessing, uh, they, they are truly an awesome blessing and a phenomenal gift from God, and everything about a kid is wonderful. But is the birth of a child a miracle? I'm not sure it is, but you're going to have to decide for yourself what you think about that. Uh, I wonder. I don't think it meets the criteria of a biblical miracle, but that's something you're going to have to sort through. One of the texts that's really helped me understand this whole area is in Numbers 16, 28 through 30. This is the controversy between Moses and, and uh, a man who opposed him by the name of, I've uh, got to look his name up here, um, Korah. And he was challenging Moses' authority, why Moses should lead these people. And they, Moses got angry, and, and there was this pretty tense discussion going on between them. And, and Moses said, let's meet in the morning. And these are the words, three verses in Numbers 16, 28 through 30. And Moses said, listen carefully to these words, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of mine accord. 
If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. What Moses is doing is he's saying, this is the test of my leadership of this nation out of the bondage of Egypt and into the promised land. He went on to say in verse 30, but if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. It's interesting that when Moses uses the word new there, this is a new thing. It's the root word for create. He is the creator. It's bara in the Hebrew. He created this judgment that came upon this. This was the work of God, unequivocally. And Moses' leadership went on from there. So understand and know these things. Miracles are the result, in my view, uh, and just consider this, think about it critically, they are the result of divine activity and power. Second thing is miracles draw people to faith. We've seen that really clearly in uh, both of the accounts of Ananias and, and Dorcas. They were uh, healed, they were brought back to life, and many, many, many people came to faith. They became a, a platform, if you will, through which the gospel was shared. I'm guessing, how many people did Peter have to disciple in Joppa after these events? It's probably why he stayed. But just understand the miracles in, in all of their wonder and greatness. They were bringing authentication to the messenger, Peter, as an apostle, and the message of the gospel, and people believed it. They were touched by the testimony of a life that was changed by God. And they responded to the gospel. And how God did all of that, I'm not sure. The Spirit, I think, was deeply involved in that. To understand, throughout Scripture, miracles are, are more the exception than the common norm. There's only three eras when we really see in Scripture the occurrence of miracles. The first is the ministry of Moses. The second is Elijah and Elisha. And the third is Jesus and the apostles. So think of it in that way. Uh, and, I mean, just by comparison, none of Abraham's children are we ever aware of in the Scriptures performing a miracle. Never did David or Samuel or Saul perform a miracle. Never did Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel perform a miracle. So I just want to urge us to think about these things with caution. Miracles, I believe, were used by God to authenticate his messenger and his message. Here's a, three examples I just mentioned. Moses was God's messenger. He was given miracles to deliver God's people from bondage. He had God's authority to do that, and he had God's empowering work through him as God brought miracle after miracle to bring deliverance. Think of Elijah and Elisha. They were prophets to a very uh, ancient culture in Israel that had turned away willfully from God and were walking without faithfulness to God. And their ministry was draw to draw people back 
to God. And so God authenticated them as his messengers and the miracles they performed drew their attention back to God and, and hopefully to lead the nation back toward a more faithful relationship with God. Jesus and the apostles, it's a little bit plainer. He was God's messenger. They were sent by him as God's messengers and the miracles uh, were given to bring confirmation of that and then to provide a platform for the spread of the gospel. So there we go. Lastly, miracles are, as we see them in the scriptures, are perfect, complete, without fail, instantaneous. We don't always see that in the world around us, and, and I don't know what to do with the stuff we all hear about in the world around us. I really don't, because I don't have a biblical basis for saying that's the way it should be or that's the way it shouldn't be. So we have to take, I think, what we know from God's Word and use caution as we think about what's going on in the world around us. Understand that these miracles that we've seen in these texts today and other places in the Scripture were perfect, complete, without failure. Understand, though, as well, that uh, miracles uh, were um, something that, that we want to be careful with when we think about them. They're not better than God's Word. Think about all the miracles Jesus did, and I'm thinking of, of the raising of Lazarus. And it says in the Scriptures in chapter 11, verse 45, that after Lazarus arose from the dead, many believed. But then in chapter, verse 26, it says, or excuse me, 46, many didn't believe and they turned away and they went to, to conspire with the Jewish leaders. So understand, miracles don't make people believe. They just raise the awareness of a God who's powerful and who's operating in our world. And we don't want to dismiss miracles either. Jesus brought condemnation to people who didn't respond to them. Uh, think of... Uh, of uh, the text in, in Matthew, uh, verse 11, 20 through 21. He said, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So his, his performance of these things were to bring repentance and faith. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So I, I want to just submit to you to consider, think about, pray about uh, these, these things that I see in Scripture about miracles. They're very important, but they're not more powerful than God's Word, uh, but they do lead men and women to Christ uh, through faith as they see these things happening around them. But be cautious. So let me wrap it up with just a few thoughts. Understand that we're yet uh, a little bit before the end times unfolding. Uh, we haven't talked about that much at Redemption, but it's in the Scripture. There is an end times coming. There is a judgment coming. There's a terrible time coming. And Jesus warned about that time in regard to miracles and false teachers. He says in Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is not a fluffy subject to be thinking about. This is important, that we understand how these things 
uh, are borne out in the truth of Scripture and allow the Scripture to shape and guide our thinking about them. So I'm going to leave you with this, these three points to consider. I, I think they're valid characteristics of true biblical miracles. Number one is miracles pointed men to God. God is the author and the doer of miracles. Never lose sight of that because he has the power and the capacity to act above and beyond this natural world as we know it. Number two, miracles drew men to faith. We saw that in these two passages so clearly. Many came to believe in Jesus because of these miracles. So they fulfilled the purpose that we saw in our initial description of a miracle, to affirm, to confirm the messenger of God and the message of God and to bring people to believing faith. And lastly, the miracles by their very character and, and their unfolding were perfect, were instant. They didn't fail. So bear that in mind as you think about and evaluate how you view the miracles and use the word miracle in your vocabulary and life in these days. It is a, uh, yeah, challenging subject. I hope I haven't offended any of you. I hope I've encouraged you to think more seriously about the subject of how we view and understand this subject. It's difficult. It's challenging. Uh, we could probably preach three or four more messages on it, but you probably wouldn't want to hear them. So, so anyway, uh, just take uh, what we've shared here, these three truths, I, I believe, are characteristics. Miracles pointed to God. Miracles drew men to faith. And miracles were instant and perfect. Let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the unfolding of your text and the powerful working of your spirit and your word through the lives of Peter as, as we saw as well in uh, Jesus and as we'll see in others as we move forward in our studies together over uh, this year and next year. Father, uh, guide us, instruct us, inform us, help us to learn and use uh, caution when we talk about such things that have so vast and, and significance, so, so vast and, and uh, huge significance in our vocabularies, in our lives, in the culture around us. Lord, and let us not be led astray uh, as you remind us even the possibility exists that false prophets and false Christs doing signs, wonders, and miracles can even lead the elect astray. Uh, we trust that that won't happen to any in this room. We trust that we will be faithful and focused on your word and your truth in every way. And Lord, we, we celebrate you. Thank you for the uh, music we introduced our worship time with. You are the great king, the glorious God. You are overall, and Father, the, the real centrality of, of all of what we talked about tonight is this simple truth. Men and women came to believe in you. They embraced the gospel. They saw the power of God and the truth of Jesus, and they believed and became followers uh, and fellow uh, members of your kingdom, Father. And they became servants of your kingdom as well. So we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We trust and pray, God, you will uh, protect us and guide us and give us um, understanding and insight into these challenging subjects. We pray all this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.